Hi, I'm Ethan. I'm the family pastor here at Seabreeze. Three times during this past week, I was two minutes into a conversation when it occurred to me, pretty much all I've done in this whole conversation is complain about things that I can't do in 2020. Now, fortunately, the people that I was talking to in those conversations, they were, they were gracious with me. They didn't, they didn't bring it up or anything. But it did make me realize that my new standard greeting is slowly becoming something like, Hi, how are you? Isn't it a bummer about all the things we can't do? That's just the world that we're living in right now. It's a season that's filled with restrictions. And in a season filled with restrictions, it's really easy to focus on what we can't do. But in this series, we're looking at things that we can do. We're doing that by looking at the lives of men and women in the Bible who are faced with far greater restrictions than the ones that we face today. And as we look at their lives, we're seeing that what they did, we can do as well. So far, we've seen that, like Paul, we can press on despite difficulty. Like Elijah, we can pray earnestly. Like Job, we can choose contentment. And then last week, we saw how, like Esther, we can redeem the time. Today, we'll look at how we can be single-minded. To be single-minded, it means to, to have or to concentrate on only one aim. And for followers of Christ, that single aim is to please God. In other words, for single-minded followers of Christ, pleasing God is the aim that trumps all other aims. The opposite of single-minded is double-minded. And double-minded, that means to waver between two or more aims. And for the double-minded, pleasing God, well, it might be one of several aims, several competing aims, but it's not the aim. It's not the aim that overrides all other aims. And so because of this, someone who is double-minded is unstable at best, and at worst is hypocritical. The book of James describes the double-minded person this way. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, who is the double-minded man here? Well, the double-minded man is the one who asks for wisdom from God, but with doubting. And doubting what? Doubting that God will provide the wisdom? Well, that might be part of it, but the main thing that he doubts is whether or not he will actually act on the wisdom that he receives from God. His mindset is essentially, God, I will do whatever you ask me to do, unless, of course, I don't want to. Unless, of course, I don't feel like it. Therefore, he's accurately described as unstable, an unstable man. The double-minded, he's kind of like a friend who offers to help you move into a new apartment. And then when you say, great, thanks, Saturday, 9 a.m., afterward, we'll all have pizza. Oh, he starts to backtrack at that point. He starts to think how he can get out of it because he didn't actually intend for you to take him up on that offer. He wants the credit of being thought of as a helpful friend. He just doesn't want to carry a refrigerator up a flight of stairs. He's unstable and unreliable. For an example of double-mindedness toward God, we actually, though, don't need to look really any farther than our own hearts. 
Anyone who's ever tried to please God, you know what it's like to wake up in the morning and intend to please God. And then by the time you're going to bed at night, realize that we spent our entire day pursuing entirely different things other than the aim of pleasing God, pursuing entirely, entirely different aims. We know about double-minded. We don't need to be told about double-minded. What we need is an example of single-minded. And so for that today, we're going to look at the life of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah's story, it's found in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, which makes sense. And we're going to take a look at a part of his life from that book, and we're going to ask the question, what did he do to maintain a single-minded aim of pleasing God? We're going to ask that question about his life, and then as we do, we're going to see that the things that he did, we can do as well. So Nehemiah, he lived about 400 years before Christ. And the context of his story is that the Jewish people, they'd been conquered by a foreign nation. They had been conquered, and their, their capital city of Jerusalem had been absolutely destroyed. And then they were carried off into exile, into a foreign nation. Now, eventually, the Jews were given permission to return home, to return back to Jerusalem and the area there. So many Jews did that. They chose to return back. Others, they decided to remain right where they were. So generations come, generations go. And now Nehemiah, he finds himself not among those um, who have returned, who have gone back to Jerusalem. Instead, he finds himself as cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world at the time, the king of the Persian Empire. So as cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire, Nehemiah, he was a close attendant of that king. One of his main duties would have been to taste all the food and all of the drink of the king before the king tasted it. And this was basically a safeguard so that no one could poison the king. They had to go through Nehemiah before they could get to the king. And there's really no jobs that are quite like cupbearer that we still have around today. There's no one-to-one -one equivalent that we can point to. But a helpful, uh, if, if not imperfect, way of looking at Nehemiah's role would actually be to compare it to a golf caddy like we have today. So in pro golf, a caddy is obviously in an inferior role to the golfer. And if, if you're not sure if that's true or not, just consider how many golf caddies Nike is paying to be in their commercials. It's not a very high number. But despite being in an inferior role, it's actually an underrated role. No one has more access or influence to the pro golfer than his caddy does. But then, most importantly, the caddy, he has the unreserved trust of the golfer. He has to be able to trust him. He has to be able to rely on his judgment. And so in a similar but exaggerated way, Nehemiah, as cupbearer, he was inferior to the king in his role, but he had a rare level of access and influence with the king. Most of all, he enjoyed the king's absolute trust. The king had to know that Nehemiah didn't have a price at which he could be bought to slip some poison into the king's food or the king's drink before the king ate it. And so the bottom line is that the cupbearer, that might not sound like an impressive thing, but it was actually a privileged position, and it came with a lot of comfort, and it came with a lot of influence. But then one day, some visitors come. They come, and they have a message for Nehemiah about the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem, and this news that Nehemiah receives, that changes everything about his life. So here's what the message was. They said to me, we read in Nehemiah 1, uh, 
Verse three, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah learns that this wall that would have been surrounding Jerusalem is just laying in absolute ruins. Now, there's been some attempts in recent years to, to repair the wall, but I mean, apparently those attempts have failed, and so the wall is still in complete ruins. And we read about Nehemiah's response next. It says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So this mourning and fasting and prayer, this goes on for days. And this really begs the question, why did this news have such a profound impact on Nehemiah? And every time I come across this story, every time I read it, it just kind of puzzles me about why Nehemiah is so burdened for this cause that really doesn't seem to have an impact on his day-to-day life. I mean, sure, it's sad. It's a sad thing. But why can't he just be sad and, and shake it off and move on with the other good things that he's got going on in his life? Well, the reason is because Nehemiah was single-minded. That's why we're talking about him this morning. And as such, he deeply valued the things that God values. And this is the first thing that Maya, Nehemiah did that we can do as well. We can value what God values. Now, as I mentioned, I, I tend to read this story and think, okay, so a wall, that's sad, but I mean, come on, Nehemiah, overreact much here? It just, this seems totally disproportionate. But to Nehemiah, this wall, this represents the security of his people. With the wall in ruins, his people were exposed to attack from all sides. But there's more than just a security element going on here. There's also a mission element at play. Throughout the entire history of the Jewish people, God has told them that he was going to bless them. And he's going to bless them, not just for their own sake, he was going to bless them so that they could be a blessing to the whole world, to all of the nations. They were to be a light pointing to God. That was, that was what God had told them since the very beginning of their history. And now with the wall of the city in ruins, and as we just read, the inhabitants of the city, they're in disgrace. Man, that light is looking pretty dim. It looked like God's people and God's mission were in jeopardy. But Nehemiah was actually removed from all of this. I mean, he lived in a palace. He ate the most luxurious food in the world. He had a good thing going. And frankly, he had a lot to lose if he chose to get involved. And so if Nehemiah hadn't valued the things that God valued, then the prudent thing for him to do would have been to just maybe take a moment of silence and move on with life. But instead, he goes on for months, we're told. He goes on for months deeply affected by what seems like this precarious state of God's people and God's mission. Nehemiah had synchronized his heart to be attached to the things that God's heart was attached to. And apparently, he allowed what was on his heart to show up on his face. Here's what we read in chapter 2, verse 2. So the king asked me, he takes notice of Nehemiah, and he says, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. So the king correctly diagnoses Nehemiah's condition as sadness of the heart. And as a result, Nehemiah tells us, I was afraid. 
And he was afraid because he knew that he was about to wade into water, wade into some waters that could really displease the king. But as dangerous as it was to displease a Persian monarch, Nehemiah's top concern is pleasing God, not pleasing the king. Now, let's take a moment right here just to kind of press pause on the story and take a moment to allow ourselves to be challenged by Nehemiah's example thus far in the story. Everything that God is getting ready to do, everything that he's about to do through Nehemiah, it's set in motion because Nehemiah allowed his heart to be moved by the things that move God's heart. If we want to be single-minded, then this needs to be the starting place for us as well. We need to follow this example. And we do that by learning the things that God values, like Nehemiah did, and then adopting those as our values as well. And learning what God values, that's, that's absolutely essential. Because without knowing what is important to God, any effort that we make to please him, it's just going to be a shot in the dark. If we don't know what's important to him, we won't know what we're aiming at. But thankfully, God hasn't hidden his values from us. He hasn't put them somewhere where we can't find them. They're not out of reach. What Nehemiah knew, we can know as well. God has clearly spelled out for us his values, what is important to him in the pages of the Bible. And what a gift that is. I mean, consider this. We can actually learn what is, what's God's heart is, what his values are by spending time interacting with his word. Just like if you want to get to know what I value, what would you do? Well, you would have to interact with me. You'd have to interact with me, talk to me, spend time with me, um, ask questions. And similarly, if we want to get to know God, if we want to get to know what he values in particular, man, we need to spend time in his word, asking questions of his word, seeking answers from his word. And as we do that, we discover that what God values, man, that's actually very accessible and knowable to us. We can actually know what pleases and what displeases the very God who made us. And as we uncover what he values, we can ask him to help us choose to make those values our values so, we can, so that the things that are important to him can be important to us as well. And he will help us with that. So like Nehemiah, we can choose to value what God values. The next thing that Nehemiah did that we can do as well is to resolve to obey. Resolve to obey. So jumping back into the story of Nehemiah, we see that after the king asked Nehemiah why he was so down, Nehemiah answers in this way. He says, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So when the king here says, what is it you want? Nehemiah, he says a quick prayer, and then he boldly requests permission from the king to go to Jerusalem and lead the effort to rebuild the wall. But he doesn't stop there. He also asks the king to basically fund the whole project, to foot the bill for the whole project. And the king, and he grants all of those requests. But what's easy to miss here is that this entire exchange between Nehemiah and the king, this is actually in response to a prayer that Nehemiah had prayed earlier in chapter one. So it's a pretty long prayer, but here's how it ends. He said, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And this man here, he talks about granting favor in the presence of this man. That's talking about the king. So Nehemiah requested favor with the king and God granted it. And this is instructive. It's instructive for us to note that the way that God granted it, the way that God granted this wasn't in such a way that Nehemiah had no risk or no role to play. Instead, God actually answered this prayer in a way that required Nehemiah to put his neck on the line, and he had to act with boldness, and he had to act with obedience. If Nehemiah had been like the double-minded man, the one that we read about in James, who makes a request to God still undecided about whether or not he's actually going to obey, then, well, this would likely be the end of the story right here. Or, even more likely, we would never know Nehemiah's name to begin with. There's nothing very remarkable about a man who wants to follow God and then changes his mind and decides that, you know what, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's everyday stuff. But Nehemiah, he doesn't waffle. What he asked for in chapter 1, he's ready to follow through on in chapter 2. He had decided in advance to obey God. And so when God provided the opportunity, he said a final prayer and he's ready to act quickly and boldly. And God loves to give wisdom and resources to people who ask in the way that Nehemiah asked. He loves to give wisdom and resources to those who ask when they're resolved to obey him. We don't serve a stingy God by any means. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God loves to resource those who are fully committed to him to do his will. But often we ask for wisdom and we ask for resources and we do it half-heartedly instead of in a fully committed way. That is, we ask without a resolve to actually obey. We would rather wait and see exactly what obedience entails before we make that commitment. Several months ago, my wife and I, we bought a new mattress from an online mattress company. The way it worked is they delivered it to our door and they said that we could try it out for a whole year. And if we didn't like it, they would haul it away for a full refund. And so the reason that we went with that option in the first place is that we didn't really want to commit to a product that we thought we might regret buying later. So it was a perfect option for us. But often, we treat God and his word like an online mattress company. We want him to deliver wisdom to us, but we don't actually want to commit too early to applying that wisdom. If we judge that his wisdom is a good product, then okay, yeah, we're more than happy to apply it. If not, uh, we want to reserve the right of looking for a better option or perhaps a more comfortable option. If we come to God and his word and we say, show me what to do, and if I like it, I'll do it, we're always going to be double-minded. And we will likely never take big risks for God and will likely never accomplish much for God. One of the areas where I personally struggle the most with the resolve to obey aspect of single-mindedness is when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus, sharing what he's done in my life with others. Now, I've, I've read in the Bible enough to know that this is, this is very important to God. I'm absolutely convinced that 
me telling other people about Jesus is something that God values very highly. And so because I'm convinced of this, because I know that this is something that's important to him, I'll often ask God for wisdom and for opportunities to tell other people about him. But if I'm honest, sometimes in the back of my mind while I'm asking, man, I'm not really 100% convinced that I intend to take those opportunities when they come or not 100% convinced that I intend to act on that wisdom when it comes. So in those times, it's really like I'm praying, God, show me how I can share you with others, but then with a little asterisk attached to it that says, and if it's easy enough, I'll go ahead and do that. And so Nehemiah's story, it challenges me. It challenges me to remove that asterisk, take that away um, as something that's no longer attached to my obedience, whether it's in the area of sharing about Jesus with others or another area of my life. And so what about you? What are the areas in your life where you find yourself attaching a little asterisk next to your obedience? And then having thought about that, consider how much more do you think that God might do in your life and through your life if you were to remove that asterisk or any exceptions clauses that are attached to your obedience to God? And I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't know what more God might do in you and through you if that asterisk was taken away. But my guess is, you'd probably be surprised. What Nehemiah did, we can do. We can resolve to obey. And then the final thing that Nehemiah did that we can do as well is refuse distraction. Refuse distraction. So after arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, he went about organizing the people and they began the work of building the wall. They began right away, and they actually began on a, on a pretty good note. The work was going remarkably well, and that started to attract the attention of people in the neighboring cities. And the leaders of those cities, they did not want to see Jerusalem thrive. They actually wanted the Jews to remain weak, and so they wanted the wall to remain in ruins. One man in particular, his name was Sanballat, he led the opposition against Nehemiah. And his tactic was to throw just distraction after distraction at Nehemiah with the goal of pretty much derailing the whole project. So the first thing he did is he threatened with just straightforward military violence to discourage the workers and bring the project to a halt. This was a threat that Nehemiah actually really needed to take seriously. And so he said in chapter 4, verse 16, he said, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. So Nehemiah countered the threat um, by dedicating half, fully half of his workforce to construction, while the other half was set aside kind of on guard duty. So he did this, and the work goes on. And the next thing that Sanballat does is he sends a message to Nehemiah, and he invites him to come and to talk with him. Again, Nehemiah refuses to be distracted. He replied with this following message. He said, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I love this response of Nehemiah. I'm carrying on a great project here. Why should I go down to you? Why should the work stop while I go down and talk to you? And so four times, we're told, four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. So Nehemiah, again, refuses distraction, and the work goes on. 
Finally, as the wall is nearing completion, Sanballat, he spreads a false rumor of a conspiracy against Nehemiah's life. He claimed that there was going to be an assassination attempt on Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah had to come down. He had to go hide himself in the temple was his, was his, um, was his conspiracy claim. And if Nehemiah didn't do that, then he was going to die. And so for this one, Nehemiah just sees right through the plot and he calls the bluff. And again, the work goes on. To complete the wall, Nehemiah had to refuse distraction after distraction. And actually refusing distraction is a mark of the single-minded. They have to do that over and over again. But to the double-minded, distractions are actually welcomed. They're a welcome thing. And that's because distractions provide the double-minded with an easy excuse to avoid the things that they really weren't too sure that they wanted to do in the first place. Now, I've got four kids, as many of you know, and one thing that I've noticed about them is that they can be playing for hours on end, and as soon as my wife and I say, okay, kids, it's time to clean up, all of a sudden, everybody has to go to the bathroom, and it's an absolute emergency. It cannot wait another moment. They didn't have to go for hours while they were playing, but oh, it's time to clean up. Now, everybody has to go to the bathroom, and it cannot wait. Now, why is that? Well, it's, it's not complicated. It's because when they're suddenly faced with something that they don't want to do, they just welcome any excuse. The first excuse they can think of will do in order to get out of it. And they're smart. They're smart kids. Most kids are pretty sharp. They know that a straight-up refusal, it's going to come with consequences. They refuse to obey. Mm, that's not the smartest thing to do. And so they latch on to the first distraction that comes to mind to avoid cleaning. As adults, we're only slightly more sophisticated. We don't want to directly say no to God. That, of course, doesn't seem smart. And so we embrace distractions as convenient excuses. And this was true of us in 2019. Then entered the granddaddy of all distractions, a global pandemic. Now, excuses, honestly, they're easier than they've ever been. In fact, if you can't come up with excuses in 2020, then you're probably just not that good at coming up with excuses. The distractions that we faced in recent months, they come in a great variety. They come in all kinds of forms. But one of the top ones on the list is fear. And fear is the main distraction that Nehemiah had to face and deal with as well. He had to de deal with the fear of attack on the one hand, and then he had to de deal with fear of assassination. The fear of attack turned out to be a credible threat. It was at least credible enough that he couldn't just dismiss it and not take action on it. That's why he armed half his labor force. The fear of assassination, well, that one turned out to be a phantom threat. There was really no substance behind it. And that's why Nehemiah took no action to address it. Now, we're faced with both kinds of threat today as well. Now, we know that a virus... That's a credible threat. Many of you know people who have lost loved ones or you've lost loved ones yourself. But mixed in with the credible threat are all kinds of phantom threats. Conspiracy theorists, they're having a heyday in 2020. And so for us, discerning the, the credible threats from the phantom threats, man, that can seem overwhelming. It can seem downright impossible. It's actually amazing in Nehemiah's story that he was able to discern which threats were credible and which threats were not. 
And so while it's good for us to do what he did and try to discern and decipher the credible from the non-credible, we don't want to miss the most important thing that he did. And that is that whether the threat was real or imagined, he didn't allow it to distract him from what God was doing in Jerusalem in 444 BC. He didn't let the threat keep him from obeying God. Now, he did adapt his plans around the threats when that was necessary. That's why he endured the inconvenience of losing 50% of his workforce to guard duty. But he kept up his single-minded aim of pleasing God and doing his work. He didn't treat the distractions that were thrown at him as excuses. Instead, he treated them as obstacles to overcome. Similarly, today, God is looking for men and women who will view the distractions of 2020 not as excuses to do whatever it is that they want, but instead view them as obstacles to overcome with the aim of pleasing God and carrying out his work. Despite all the drama, Jerusalem in 444 BC, it was probably a pretty exciting place to be. The wall had laid there in ruins for over a hundred years, but then God used Nehemiah and his single-mindedness to completely rebuild the wall in only 52 days. Those who were there, they got to be a part of something pretty cool that God was doing. They got to be a part of something incredible and see God working right before their eyes. And I think that the same can be said of Huntington Beach in 2020 AD. I mean, I can't wait to see how God uses the events of this past year in order, in order to bring many people in our city to know him. And this, this really is an exciting place to be. And God is doing something incredible right before our eyes. And if we want to be a part of it, we can. It's going to require, though, single-mindedness. It's going to require that we learn to value the things that God values. It'll require resolving to obey God regardless of the cost, regardless of the risk. And it's going to require refusing many of the distractions that are thrown our way day after day. But with God's help, we can do that. Let's pray. God, you are the only one who is worthy of our single-minded focus. And God, um, you bring us into the story that you are writing and you choose you choose to use us with what you are doing in our city and in our world. You are changing our lives, and we are so grateful that you have uh, reached out to, to include us and, and, to, and to bring restoration to our lives, our church, and our families. God, I pray that you would teach us to value the things that you value, that we would resolve to obey you, that you would give us the strength that we need, that your spirit would encourage us and help us to do that and that you would help us to remain focused despite the many distractions that are thrown our way. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.